This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and um, today with me, Cam Ruslan, <laughs> we are going to be doing uh, one of our occasional special editions where we, instead of talking to a panel of people, we talk to one person to try to really get a deep dive into understanding a particular uh, topic. And, and this week, uh, we're going to look at the film industry as an industry. Uh, here in Malaysia, but also uh, how it can tie into the global movie industry. And uh, the person that we're going to be talking to today is, I think, probably best place to to help us there. She is Lorna T. Hi, Lorna. Hi, Cam. And uh, I'll just quickly say before I hand it over to, to Lorna, uh, that Lorna is a Malaysian and she's now c- currently living in Amsterdam, has been for some time. and uh, She's deeply embedded in um, the movie-making networks as a producer, which is when, when normally when we talk about movies, we talk to actors and we talk to directors, and I'm a filmmaker myself, and I would say actors and directors don't know anything about anything. Uh, what you really want to talk to, you really want to talk to a producer. So Lorna, um, what is it exactly that you do? First of all, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I'm very excited to talk about uh, what I do because sometimes I feel that by articulating what I do to people, I understand a little bit more about what I do too. Um, So I started out working um, actually as a film producer um, in the uh, mid-2000s. My first film that I made was James Lee's My Beautiful Washing Machine. And I knew nothing about um, film production at that point, all James said was, just find me some money so I can shoot the film. <laughs> so yes, that was my entry into sort of like film production. And um, other than finding the money for the film, I also f- became the location manager, uh, the catering manager, the prop person, um, and occasionally the gaffer to kill. So it was a really steep learning curve into film production. But I went on to work with Putri Gunung Ledang. So from a ten thousand US dollar film, I went on to a five million dollar film, and at that point, the most expensive film Malaysia has made. Until helping sort of like the producers uh, work on the international marketing and promotion of the film, learning how to submit a film to the Oscars, learning how to premiere the film in Venice, and uh, learning how to sort of like position the film internationally. So another steep learning curve. And then I moved to Hong Kong and worked for Andy Lau uh, in his company Focus Films. And I started producing and distributing films from young filmmakers from the region, from Malaysia, Singapore, Taiwan, China, Hong Kong, and yeah, those few territories. And then I understood a little bit more about um, films as a product for a wider audience. Um, that's, that's, I think, where I learned how important it is that films need to be sort of like developed at an early stage um, with an eye for not just um, a single market, but for a wider marketplace. Um, I then worked for Variety, which is a trade magazine for the film industry that is over 120 years old now, uh, I think. Um, And I was running the business side of Variety 
um, that gave me an opportunity to get to know the greater Asian industry a lot better. Um, and in the meantime, I also um, produced the very first Asian Film Awards that was the first umbrella event that brought all of Asia together under one roof for the first time to celebrate Asian cinema, the best of Asian cinema. Then I moved on to run a film fund set up by the producer of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon um, called Irresistible to invest in new filmmakers from across Asia. Then I moved on to program for the Berlinale Film Festival as part of the selection committee for their competition films. And then I ran a festival here in um, Amsterdam. And then I was asked by the Macau government to set up a film festival in Macau, which I did um, in 2016, I think. Um, and now I'm producing and I'm programming. And I'm also doing a lot of mentoring work for young filmmakers. And I wear many different hats. Um, but yes, I'm working a lot in films. Okay. Bit of an overachiever there. Stop. Just stop there. Okay, Lorna. <laughs> We've heard enough. What I'd like to talk today is if we can conceptualize talking about a, a movie being made from beginning to end and what it takes, indeed, how perhaps our listeners might want to get in if they want to get involved if they have some money or uh, an idea and recently of course uh, you told me you you just got back from the the Cannes Film Festival uh, presumably you visited the Finas yacht down in the marina uh, I assume they have a yacht so uh, you you know you know you know the ins and outs so let's start at the beginning um, you, you've already got the, the the Malaysian gritty movie startup story as well as the larger Putri Gunung Ledang a filmmaker wants to get some money. How do you get money? Um, personally, I think that all good films start with a very good script. But not all films actually start from a good script. Some comes from uh, a great vision from a filmmaker who may not necessarily be working on films that are scripted in the conventional sense, but Let's talk about the, the general sort of like filmmaking. Start with a very good script. Um, uh, but the script has to be written in a way that works for the filmmaker's um, vision and talent. And also to see um, where the film is being made for. So when, you, when the script is being written, it's not just a story. It's also thinking about the potential audience because if you don't start with a potential audience of a film you won't understand how to bring it to the audience that needs to see this film um, so start with a good script have a really good producer who understands what producing means it's not just bringing the money in it's also bringing in the best possible team it's bringing it's ensuring that um the vision of the filmmaker is, is seen to, and it's also ensuring that there is a solid uh, sales and distribution and marketing plan for the film coming up. Okay, that, um, sound, that all sounds like hard work. <laughs> and it is hard work. But can I you, just jump back to what you said about, um, you know, thinking about the audience. If, let's say, you're a Malaysian filmmaker, 
The potential size of the, the local audience will dictate your potential budget and indeed your, your obviously your potential returns. You have a handful of movies like Pascal or Police Evo, which, which have really made a lot of money and are technically very well made compared to just a few years earlier. I mean, are these kind of movies already, have they reached the outer limits of, of the potential for Malaysia? Or is there an overseas audience also um, that can be tapped? Or is that just fantasy thinking? I think Pascal, Police Evil were, were films made uh, very much specifically to cater to the Malaysian audience. Mm. Um, and therefore, in terms of the storytelling, was very much made to appeal to a local audience. Therefore, it was a bit harder for the films to find a footing internationally after it's been released to in the, in the Malaysian um, cinemas. Only because when you actually want to, say, tap into the festival circuit or an international distribution, one of the key things the film needs to do is either be sort of like made with stars that are known globally or um, say be presented at a major film festival or market. And that is Berlin, Cannes, Venice, Toronto. So if you say, if you don't have a world premiere for any of the major film festivals, your, your chances of being um, exposed and getting the attention at a film festival is really diminished. Um, so, and, and also because of the nature of the production it's made and it's sort of like focused being very much just Malaysian market, um, it wasn't sort of like engaging um, anyone internationally from the get-go. Um, and, and there's a lot of work, but there are actually a generation of filmmakers at the moment in Malaysia that are very, very savvy in working in filmmaking and they're engaging their film projects very early on with international project markets, script labs and so forth. For example, Amanda Nell Ng with her film Tiger Stripes and, there's their, uh, and she's gotten support from France, from Germany. She has international sort of like credentials now that will ensure that her film will definitely sort of like get the attention it needs when it's made and ready to be screened. But but if you are going to be appealing to an overseas audience, say European audience, are you not already going to be having to, to, to sell back to them their Orientalist idea of what Asia is? I mean, are there Southeast Asian movies that have made that breakout move, stayed true to their, their home markets and their home audiences, but also been able to um, appeal to overseas audiences in an uncompromising way? Not from Malaysia yet, um, but I think within Asia, if this is a very sort of like um, a general sort of like statement, but we've all seen Parasite. And I think Bong Joon-ho has been one filmmaker that has always been very true to what he wants to do and the story he wants to tell. But the way he tells his stories and the way he makes the films, um, he, there, there, are, there are sort of like areas where it is completely sort of like resonating universally. So the story of Parasite would work 
in many different societies all across the world. But it's not just the universality of the story, it's also the brand of Bong Joon-ho. Uh, and Bong Joon-ho started you know, making really independent films and then slowly gaining his profile within the Korean market, which is a sizable market and a very cin uh, cinephile audience there, um, growing it internationally to working with um, sort of like Chris Evans in Snowpiercer to and Tilda Swinton to making Okja with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and again Tilda Swinton, but making it still very much a Bong Joon-ho film. So he's one of the rare filmmakers that done that, but also looking closer to home, if you see Thailand and with the film Bad Genius, for example, I think the filmmaker has made a lot of money in the box office in Thailand and also regionally. And also now the film is being remade uh, in America also. Um, I'm not sure how the Americans are gonna remake a story about cheating in exams, uh, which is not the same sentiments, you know, exams in Asia versus exams in America, but it'll be interesting to see. Um, and also, again, in Indonesia, you look at somebody like Joko Anwar, who's made films like Pengabdi um, Setan, Satan Slaves, or recently with Impetigore, Perempuan Tanah Jahanam. Both arguably are genre films uh, in the horror sort of like genre, and that has worked in Indonesia and also traveled. I think CJ sold Pengabdi um, Setan to over 50 countries in the world and it was released in cinemas in many different countries. So I, I think there is a growing trend, especially in the genre circuit, that allows for filmmakers to be able to tell stories not just through what you call the orientalist lens. Yeah. Can we just quickly uh, clarify for our audience, uh, when we use the shorthand of genre films, what we mean by that? Uh, genre films would be films within sort of like the conventions of action, horror, thrillers, um, and, and, and films that are exciting for people <laughs> it, as opposed to who, and, and again, genre is a very fluid term. Rom-com is also a genre. Um, drama is also a genre. But uh, in, in a conventional sense, within the industry, when it comes to genre, it's usually related to action, um, horror, thrillers. And there are certain evergreens. Um, horror, for instance, is... Uh, there are so many titles that are not necessarily known by all, but they can make um, a return because, I mean, back in the old days, there was always the straight-to-video... Um, but there are streaming services and, and, you know, you keep, you, I'm assuming you keep your budget down enough, but you still have production value enough. And then you can, I mean, South, Southeast Asia is just brim full of great horror stories. I mean, not that I, not that I'm really a fan of horror, but I, you know, you can see that it could really work from here. Yeah, I mean, one of the first breakout hits out of Southeast Asia was a Thai horror film, Shutter. And recently you have the director pairing up with a um, famous uh, Korean director who produced a film called The Medium. And it did really well in Korea um, now at, at the moment in cinema. So yeah. um, horror is one of the genres that travel well across internationally. Mm. 
So, okay, you've got your script. You've located your market. It's a fantastic script, by the way. And um, and you, you're, you're in Malaysia. You want to raise some money. Are you just going to go around to rich people in Malaysia? Or, or, or is there funding available outside? I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you tap into that? Um, financing comes really very much on where your the potential of the film is in terms of distribution. If the film is very much a local distribution, then the financing comes from within sort of like local funds, whether it be FINAS or MDEC or um, the local studios or any other investors within Malaysia. Um, if the film has potential for international distribution, then you're looking at a wider pool of um, financing possibilities. For example, when I did the film Mrs. K with Ho Yu Hang, um, we were clearly making the film for a more regional audience and we casted actors from Hong Kong and Taiwan to enable us to ensure that the film will get released within sort of like the Chinese language territories outside of Malaysia too. And therefore the financing came um, half from Malaysia and half from Hong Kong. So it really depends on where you, you feel your film is gonna land for you to reach out to the financing possibilities from where it could be. So what do you do? You, you just write a letter to China saying, I want to make a film, <laughs> give me some money. <laughs> How does that work? Well, um, for me, because I worked in Hong Kong, um, so I had sort of like um, relationships and network and co contacts with the talents, the actors primarily, because especially for um, films that, you want to ensure reach a wider audience or have um, a lower risk for the investors, you need to cast uh, known talents. So to cast known talents, you either have to have a lot of money to pay them or you have to have um, projects they want to do and relationships to enable them to do the projects for less than their usual fees. Okay, so, so it, helps, that, it helps if I know Andy Lau. Um, he, Yes. And, and he likes me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, we're going to move on in a moment to, to, to part two. But before we get there, can I just ask what you're describing? Is this very much a closed club? I mean, you managed to find your way inside this world. But is it something that anybody can access? Like a young guy who's just full of gumption and wants to make movies and is producer. Can, can you achieve? Can you get out there and achieve and meet these people? Yes, the film industry seems like a, a closed industry, but um, actually these days, if you have the passion, the drive, um, the desire to learn, the desire to meet and the energy to want to knock on doors and and go to all the festivals and markets to meet people, it's it's not impossible. I, I, I am... I'm connected to so many young filmmakers and young producers within the region who are terribly savvy at, at tapping into international funds, markets, festivals. And, and it's, it's really amazing to see how a new generation with the internet is, is growing out of the sort of like confines of what do you call the club. And, and they are building their own club and they are ensuring that, you know, their voices are getting out there too now. Okay. So it's, it's not that difficult. 
you just have to be persistent and everything's on the internet now so you can yeah. do your homework and 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 find people and can i just say as a filmmaker myself what you really need is a producer and you need someone <laughs> if if you're lucky enough to know somebody if you know lorna t or you know someone like lorna t then then you've got a good chance if you don't then forget it but uh in a moment though we're gonna in part two we're gonna be on set we're gonna call action on our first day shoot and we're gonna see how our filmmaking career goes from there uh in a moment here on a bit of culture bfm 89.9 and we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, and Lorna T. Um, and we're talking about the movie industry as an industry here in Malaysia, but also how Malaysia can contact and be engaged with the global movie industry. So uh, we're working our way through making a movie, uh, Lorna. Uh, we've raised our money and because uh, we understand where our market is, and we've got a great script, and we've got, we've got um, uh, a medium budget. We don't have any famous people, but, you know, Good, they're good actors. And uh, we're calling action on our first day shoot. Um, are, are we doing everything in the right order? Should we be thinking way ahead for other things? Um, or, or is it okay now to just make the movie and just let's just see how it goes and we'll work it out the other end? It's always possible. And if there's a really good filmmaker and a team, that then you can do that. But it's because there are so many films being made, if you don't, Think about how to position the film for um, after the film is made or for when the film needs to be sort of like given birth to the world, being presented to the world. Um, you, you, it's, it's not that simple um, to then put it out there. So even if you say you go into action, you need to ensure that you have a damn good still photographer. Uh, still is an image from the film. And, and if you don't have a good image, you cannot sell the film. Yeah. Um, you got to make a really damn good poster. And the poster will also be different for each territory that you're going into, depending on, again, the target. Is it a, you know, a film buyer that you're trying to appeal to? Is it audiences in Malaysia or is it audiences in France or audience in Germany? It's all going to be sort of like differently crafted. So actually the marketing PR team actually starts um, from the development process when you're writing the script even, if yeah, but, it's possible. But, but is that team under the the wing of the production itself? Does, does that team not come from the distributors? Um, <laughs> Again, it comes to how, um, what type of film it is. If it's an independent film, usually the producer will be the one wearing the hat of somebody thinking about the distribution aspect of it. If it is a film that's invested by the distribution studios, then the distribution studios will have the executives coming on board early on at the development stage telling you, oh, okay, we want this actor because they have 7 million Instagram followers and not this actor because they only have 70 Instagram followers. Um, then it's the job of the producer, for example, to find that balance between what would work and understanding also um, a, a person with 70 million followers on Instagram may not be able to act at all uh, in the role that within a script that you have spent years developing maybe. So it's always the producer's role to try to convince all the different stakeholders as to what will be the best possible results of the film. Yeah, because I, I really doubt a young Robert De Niro would have had any Instagram followers. <laughs> um, but he's quite a good actor. 
It is, and 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 um, th this is one of the problems we have because we have a. Uh, um, the internet that is a great liberator, and but also at the same time it creates a lot of noise, um, and to not many people are able to filter through all that noise, and not everybody is is good with thinking about how to position themselves um, on social media. So, um, as a producer, one of the big jobs is to figure out. Um, Actually, from, from our point of view, when we look into distribution, um, Instagram and uh, social media followers are actually, they only help create some noise and PR, but they don't help sell tickets. The people on, um, usually you want to bank on actors whose fans will actually pay money for the film itself, rather than sort of like social media fans who will just like you, but not necessarily spend the money on paying for the films. So this is something that we always try to find that balance and to convince uh, people that, that may not be aware of how the phenomenon works, actually. Mm. All right. Before we call a wrap on this movie that we're making, can I just uh, jump sideways a little bit? Um, you've been mentioning uh, distribution, you mentioned the internet, and I'm old-fashioned, and I do think in terms of a movie being made to be put in a cinema and people queuing up, paying box office, and that's the way it happens. But but there are other avenues now, and is 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 the cinema even a factor, or or are there other ways to go which are which are actually better? Ultimately, all of us in the filmmaking world, we like the cinemas because in the cinema, you have an audience that is completely engaged with your film as opposed to other sort of platforms where the audience may not be completely engaged with your film. Um, that's what you want as a storyteller is you want an engaged audience. Um, and so I would always say that, you know, the cinema should, be where we are. we want to see the films, but times are changing. Uh, the industry is evolving. We have um, many platforms and avenues to screen films other than the cinemas. And we, with the pandemic also, it's accelerated the change within our industry to um, have the key players from sort of like um, the big, established American studios becoming sort of like the people dictating how the industry works to sort of like now having the platforms uh, dictating a lot of how the trend is uh, moving along within the film industry. When I think about some of the movies that I've watched that I've really enjoyed recently, that not, not necessarily big movies, small budget, but really good, and I've watched them on, say, Netflix. Yeah. But I would never, I I would never have come across them in the cinema. They wouldn't have been released out here. They just weren't big enough Marvel comic things, and um, so I mean, it is possible, I guess, to to make a movie and you just at the end of the day, you will only ever get one check, and that is from Netflix. Is that possible? That's that's very possible, um, but. Um... 
it's it's also there are a lot of movies on the different platforms Netflix Amazon Disney plus um, you know and so forth um, so it's harder for actually people and but for you you're more engaged and you're you're looking for a specific title you're looking for titles that are not the mainstream titles but for most people they might not get a chance to see it because their algorithm doesn't show them the sort of films that you know they might want to see um, but this is the debate that is ongoing within the films industry as to what's going to happen next um, how would distribution evolve and, and, and this is, I think, a conversation that is constantly ongoing. And every audience have a different preference for how they want to screen films. And, and as filmmakers, um, we need to be receptive in all the different sort of like possibilities. The key thing is, um, I think for me, is the access for the audience to the films need to be sort of like even more enhanced in this time and age. Okay. I would always say cinema first, but if you want to watch it on your smartphone, watch it on your smartphone. But um... Simultaneously? <laughs> no. No, 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 but seriously, I mean, like the, the release, the, the world premiere in the cinema is the same date as the, the release date on the smartphone. Yes. Because the, the person watching it on the smartphone either will never go to the cinema due to different reasons, either, you know, economic reasons or access reasons. Um, it, it, it's very possible. For example, if you have a film like Roma that was by Alfonso Cuara made by Netflix, um, the producer had to um, really get all the cinemas to screen the films, but everyone who wanted to see it in the cinema went to the cinemas to see it, even though it was available on Netflix. I screened both Okja and Roma in a film festival, and both screenings in the cinemas were sold out, even though those films were available on Netflix. So the audiences who want to see the, the films on the big screen will go to the cinemas, and the audiences who want to see it on Netflix will see it on Netflix. Just a quick aside, um, come awards seasons uh movies that are released on netflix are also um entered are they not it's not just cinema releases only is it no uh the academy has changed the rules so um now online uh screenings are also eligible for to be an oscar contender but um the Oscar voting voters are still, I think, um, I would say people who would prefer and be more engaged to see a film in a cinema than they would uh, on just um, their laptop or their TV screens at home. Mm. Okay, so at the movie that we're making is, is we're old school. We're, we're making it for cinema. And uh, we've just called it a wrap. The shoot went well. No one died. The catering was good. And uh, so we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, what do we do now? We, distribution, we must already have had that worked out or we're going to show it to individual distributors? Some films are even sold before they are made. So. Yeah, if, if you're if, Martin Scorsese, yeah. Martin Scorsese also has to go to Netflix now. So, yeah. um, and he's, <laughs> but, but the, the key thing is, it's, 
if you have the right sort of like um, script and package, the package would be the talents, the director and the cast that are known to bias internationally. So some of them are sold even before they premiere in a festival like Cannes, for example, they have already sold 20 territories. For example, for a film that's not pre-sold, actually for me as a producer, I try to already engage buyers and distributors for the film I want to make from the time that I am actually uh, prepping the film. So I would even talk to the distributors at the time that I'm prepping the film when my script is ready and my cast is in place. And I would try to engage them because then I would hope to build that interest towards signing a deal for distribution by the time that you know the film is shot or when we're doing post-production. So during the period of post-production, I can engage with the distributors on the sort of materials they might need, the feedback that it will give on what would work in terms of the marketing materials that their territory would need. Um, and also maybe into thinking of like the edit versions that might work for different countries. It's a lot of work um, mm, to do that. <laughs> but it's, it's great when the film does well in different territories and you want to be able, if you're thinking of it as, you know, a business, that's how your product has to be sort of like catered to different audiences and different buyers and different territories. And they all have different tastes and, and, and. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah, but so, it, it's it's the film is a film is a very risky business. But if you know what you're doing, the risk is actually very minimal. Well, I kind of wanted to to get onto the the you know return on investment bit mm. later. But okay, let's jump into it now. Um, it you know it, it's an expensive thing, film, and yeah. you, you hear these stories of movies that that cost a fortune and never made any money back but you can make money making films i mean let's say as an investor you you can make money big money yes um i think especially in malaysia you also have finas and you have um, the possibility of getting a grant from finas when you're making feature films so a part of your budget maybe 20 percent, maybe 50 percent of your budget is covered by finas which is a grant money that is uh, that makes only 50% of the investment a risk factor for the investors. But they have to get their they have to get their money back, do they not? Yeah, but in terms of it's no longer 100% that needs to be sort right. of like recouped out of that. It, and for example, if you don't take a Finas grant, you still have FIMI, which the filming incentive and 30 now I think up to 35% of your budget that of your Malaysian spend is already covered by FINAS um, if you fulfill the, all the different criteria. So in, in that sense, I think they're not, not every country in the world has incentive and, and budgets. And if you're a producer and you know how to play with it, um, the, the, the money coming from FINAS, which is paid for by the taxpayers, should be utilized by people who understand how the business industry works. And Occasionally, we have a lot of people who understands it so well that, you know, they, they, their only key concern is to get the money from Finas, which is not the right model because then you do not cater to making films that would work in the marketplace. Um, so I think, and, and if you 
pair it. So, for example, you have a certain percentage of your investment already covered by grants. And if the film and script is good enough, it will also get grants from other territories. So in Singapore, in the Philippines, at the moment, there are co-production grants for ASEAN countries. So again, you can get up to 150,000, 200,000 US dollars from the Philippines or the Singaporean side, if you know how to do the co-production with them. And those are the money that you do not have to recoup um, from distribution. So there are many areas. So you can get money from France or Germany and so on and so forth. Then that's part of your investment that is kind of secured that you don't need recruitment. That becomes a bigger profit share enabled for um, equity investors that are coming on board. So you, you can make, what kind of return could you make? Uh, it depends on what kind of film and how big the film, whether the film would be a big box office for Malaysian audience or the film would be a sort of like a, the sort of film that would be a maybe not a big box office in Malaysia, but would find releases and distribution in, say, 40 different territories and get it sold. Or maybe not distributed everywhere, but gets a big sort of like either uh, what we call in the old days a cable deal um, with a regional cable like um, Fox TV or Star Movies and so on or Celestial or but all now with the platforms so it gets picked up by you know one of the different platforms out there for either regional or local or international sort of like um, playing on those platforms but um, the platforms were paying a lot of money in a few years back but because there's so many films that they could have option of the film really has to stand out and again it comes to a point where it's at the point where you're making the film whether the film will you know be good enough in terms of storytelling and the packaging for the platform at a later stage and whether then the film also has a healthy profile internationally having maybe gone to big festivals or won awards or gotten a lot of good reviews um internationally yeah you, did, you didn't give me a figure though did you oh sorry in all those scenarios we're talking about what 50 percent back 100 percent back it's very hard to talk about figures because it's really it's a case-by-case -case basis which each film so for example, if a film is made, I would say a, a good number would be if a film does well, the recruitment would be, say, 100 to 150% to 200% of the film. And, but but it, the, it's going to take like three years minimum. Three years is the minimum. I would say five years for that to happen. Yeah, yeah. But uh, now it's moving a lot faster with things sometimes going straight to platform. So, for example, you may be making a film that may not initially be um, a, one of the platform films, but they might have somebody seeing it at the editing process and say, we want to pick up this film and label it as an original and be picked up. And it would cover not just the cost of the film, but also uh, a large sum to... Um, for the investors to share hmm. a nice profit from. Well, uh, speaking of uh, things that uh, investors can share in, uh, we're running out of time, but we haven't, in our fictional movie, we haven't even gone to the Cannes Film Festival yet. 
which uh, which is the bit as a filmmaker that I always wanted to do. But uh, the Cannes Film Festival is glitz and glamour, but it's so much more than that. It's glitz, glamour, and a lot of business and wheeling and dealing behind it. It is like the mecca for filmmakers to be in Cannes. But it's also for producers and distributors. If a film gets to Cannes, the chances of it getting a wider distribution is higher uh, because there's a lot of press in Cannes and a lot of film buyers are in Cannes. So your opportunity to be exposed to a wider audience um, grows exponentially when you are selected to Cannes. And it's not just the glitz and glamour and the fun of being in Cannes. Yeah, because I saw a Facebook post from you, Lorna, Lorna T, um, saying, you know, I'm off to Cannes. Uh, does anybody want to share a taxi from the airport? Which which, which I thought was the, the definition of a humble brag. <laughs> the taxis are very expensive and my taxi is paid for and I want to offer it to somebody who might not have <clears throat> okay. the, the resources to take a taxi um, because the bus is not fun. <laughs> Well, um, Lorna, we, we've kind of we're kind of running out of running running out of time here. I think we've charted a movie from beginning to end. But are there any 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 bits that I've missed out that uh, that people need to think about? I think we need to think about. I think Malaysian cinema at the moment is in a very good place. We have a lot of very interesting talents. Um, but what the talents need is actually the sort of like infrastructure that can help them propel themselves further. And the infrastructure consists on a few different things. Um, the support, institutional support from within the country, um, the filmmaking community being able to sort of like raise their, um, their standards, um, investors and stakeholders that are going to be courageous enough to stand by the filmmakers' visions and talents and 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 push them further. And also, uh, I think the press, um, this is something that, you know, uh, I think to celebrate the, the actual sort of like talents uh, that are doing good work out there. And sometimes the press would write a story about some films or filmmakers that win numerous awards in some obscure festival or some scam festival. So there's a lot of things that need to happen mm. um, to ensure that the whole infrastructure is gamed towards, you know, propelling the Malaysian film industry forward. Mm. Um, I think my last thing is definitely the abolition of uh, censorship always helps to grow the best uh, Filmmaking. So one of the things I tweeted after the win of Parasite is that Koreans have a sizable market. The Koreans have good infrastructure and support. They have good audiences that support all different sorts of filmmaking, but they have no censorship in Korea. So that's something that would help um, the storytelling be more dynamic. And also with the South Korean model, I mean, South Korea must be the holy grail for all of Asia now, how to do things. You know, they, they invested so much money uh, and um, just emotional commitment into the arts, educating, training arts practitioners at the precise moment when the when demo the democratic process came back, when the military were kicked out, then they they spent the money on that and they're reaping the rewards now. And I often think that, you know, 
it's often portrayed that oh, it's all just fun games for the filmmakers and the actors, but a successful movie industry. You look at South Korea again, K-pop, K-drama movies. The 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 glitz and glamour of these, the culture informs and and elevates something like a car, something like a Samsung tablet is infused with K-popness, and it, it it all talks to each other and. Malaysia is so brandless because we, we've very rarely had cultural exports. Instead, it's just stamped out by, by like, as you say, censorship. So I, I think it's, it's, it's uh, an essential investment. Will it be made? I don't know. We can only hope that it will happen. I think we have a young gener younger generation that's really dynamic and wanting to do good things out there. And what we can do as the older generation is to give them that sort of like, you know, as much moral support and, and guidance. Uh, any filmmakers that come to me, you know, I always am happy to help them. Anybody wants to invest in film but needs to know more, I'm happy to walk them through it too. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. If, you are, if you are listening out there and you're either one of those two camps, um, uh, Lorna, you, you should take her at her word there and follow up um but but how you find her like the a-team um back in the day people who know 80s references um you know good luck uh so lorna well thank you so much for joining us today it's been an education and we're looking forward to your script yeah, and your film yeah about that lorna uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk afterwards um okay well thank you so much and um I hope you can join us again next time, perhaps on a panel uh, yeah. with you in Amsterdam and us over here in KL. Or and maybe when I come back to KL for some good old Malaysian cuisine. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so thank you so much. Uh, Lorna T. Thank you, Cam. Take care, everybody. And uh, from myself, Cam Rusland, please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.